Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, uh, I want to invite you to turn again to Proverbs chapter 12. And as you know, we have been working our way through the book of Proverbs, and it's been a, a, a very good book to go through. I, I know I've enjoyed it, and uh, I probably myself personally have been through the Proverbs well over probably 10 or 15 times, and yet uh, it's just, again, coming through it has just been a really uh, an eye-opener for so many things for me, and I've enjoyed it very much. And uh, chapter 12 has been a tremendous chapter, and uh, we've been looking at uh, how we use words based on our heart attitude. We've been talking about an attitude of righteousness and an attitude of wickedness, and correspondingly then what comes out of our mouth based on where our heart is and then what we say in our speech and our language. And today we're going to look at verses 23 through 28, and we're going to close out this great chapter today. And uh, I think we'll find some things that will help us today. So I want to begin reading here in Proverbs chapter 12. We'll pick it up in verse 23 to the end of the chapter. A prudent man concealeth knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaimeth foolishness. The hand of the diligent shall bear rule, but the slothful shall be under tribute. Heaviness in the heart of man maketh it stoop, but a good word maketh it glad. The righteous is more excellent than his neighbor, but the way of the wicked seduces them. The slothful man roasteth not that which he took in hunting, but the substance of a diligent man is precious. In the way of righteousness is life, and in the pathway thereof there is no death. Now, Father, help us today to glean through your word and to learn these great things. We love you so much. We thank you for all you do for us. And we pray now, Father, your blessings upon our time today and help us, Lord, to learn from this book and glean from it all of the things that you have us to learn. Uh, clean our hearts. Let us come to you today to make sure that we're clean, that we receive what the Holy Spirit of God has for us. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, verse 23 says, <clears throat> That a prudent man concealeth knowledge, <clears throat> but the heart of fools proclaimeth foolishness. Now, we've seen this prudent man before. We've talked about the word uh, be, to be prudent. And we defined the word <clears throat> in the book of Proverbs a couple of weeks ago. And we now know that it means to be cautious in what you do. <clears throat> a prudent man is someone who thinks things through before he does. He just doesn't react. He, he responds based on the principles and getting all of the facts. Somebody who is careful before he speaks. <clears throat> Somebody who understands that he has a responsibility uh, of the power of words. And, you know, it, in, the, in the great context of this chapter of a Christian's life, uh, there's two great principles that come to light here. And uh, the second part I want to look at first, it talks about a fool. A fool proclaimeth foolishness. A fool will pass on all the information that he has. He just simply uh, has no discretion, he has no discernment. Whatever he or she, uh, she'll be a pipeline of information, gossip, half-truths, the latest buzz that's going on in people's lives. And whatever they hear, they simply can't refrain uh, themselves from telling what they know uh, or, you know, what they've just learned. And the reason behind people like that, there's a science behind it, biblically. There's a, a reason for it. I think that you know, it's always good to understand why people do the things that they do. We have seen that information is power. We know that. And when a person is weak in his faith, 
and a person has a bad maybe self-image of themselves or he feels inferior to other people. Information is what we use to lift ourselves up, to make us feel more important or to give the appearance that we really are more than we are uh, as an informed person. And it gives us an importance to ourselves that we sometimes want to project. You know, making ourselves look bigger and better than we really are. People use information that they have uh, to position themselves with, with other people who don't maybe have the same information. And I, they, they'll say things like, well, you know, the pastor told me this. Translation of that is, I'm in the loop and you're not. See? They'll say, well, my husband, he's on the board, you know, and he says, translation, you see, we're on the end and you're not. You'll get your information from me. My favorite, my favorite. Now, I'm going to tell you this, but you cannot tell anybody. Translation. I just told 40 other people what I'm about to tell you, and I told them not to tell anybody because it makes you feel like you're special. (laughs) Now, the truth is, from the Bible standpoint, real power is not just having knowledge and information, though information is power. But real power is not just having it. A fool can do that. Real power is your ability to have information and yet have discernment and discretion and the ability to use that knowledge uh, that you have and not just put it out, control the information that you have. And that is so, so important. And a fool, he has none of that. A fool has no discretion. He has no discernment. So he just keeps running his mouth about all he knows and he looks like a fool. Now, the second part of this, and uh, prudent man concealeth knowledge, I want to look at the, I looked at the second part first, now I'll look at the first part second here. But the second part of this principle to verse 23 will be in the area of knowing the Bible and understanding it. You know, there's a danger in learning the Bible. I know you wouldn't think that to be true, because there's so many positive good things about learning the Bible. But the Bible talks about a man who has knowledge and he has a zeal, but he has no ability to use that zeal. And people like that are always dangerous. I'm always worried about in my ministry of turning out people who just get enough Bible to make themselves dangerous. They, in teaching the Bible, I follow a few simple basic rules out of the book of Proverbs. One of the rules is you never teach all the Bible you know. Some guys, they'll get up and they'll teach, tell everything they know about the Bible. Take them about 26 seconds. But the more you learn the Bible, the more you know about the Bible, the more you realize that there's some information that you have out of the Bible, you just don't give out to everybody. Obviously, some of the things in the Bible, they're for you. God gave them to you. You don't really share them with anybody else. They're for you. Sometimes in the Bible, if I laid out to you uh, what... Some of the things that I've seen in the Bible over the years, it, you, you will, it would blow your mind on some things. You don't spend anybody, you don't spend 40 plus years going through the scriptures and digging out that book and not see some stuff that will scare you to death, man. And you got to be careful with that. Hey, there's some things about hell that are in the Bible that, that I wouldn't tell anybody. I can get you worried about it, afraid of it, 
show you the dangers of going there and all of those things. But let me tell you something. There's some things about that place called hell that you don't find in just your average everyday sermon on hell. There's some things about the judgment seat. Boy, that's going to be a barn burner for some of God's people. And there's some things about the judgment seat of Christ that <clears throat> when I see him in there, <clears throat> and I'll lay out, I'll preach on the judgment seat of Christ every chance I can. I'll talk about the six questions like we did Thursday night. I'll lay out things, but, but there are some things about things in the Bible. When you see them, you realize that you have something here that you just can't put out to everybody. Listen, that book on eternity is one of the most absolute amazing things and there's some things about it, if I told you, you'd lose your mind. There's some things about Christ going all the way back in Genesis 1-1 and a connection between him and Lucifer before they fell. You kidding me? And I've learned that a man who has knowledge and wisdom, he understands that there comes a tremendous responsibility with the information that he has. And you don't just throw everything out there. Many times there's young Christians that get confused. Many times there's young Christians that get afraid. Many times there's young Christians that haven't got the ability to get and grasp what you're giving them. And it just, it makes it very confusing. And we know the Bible said God is not the author of confusion. But foolish people are. I'm very selective of who I give what to based on what somebody will do or won't do. Because I know information is power. I always try to give people what they need. I always try to help them with their problems. But I'm always selective because I know that information is power. There are some of God's people, I deal with them all the time. They spend all of their lives, and they're on the stupid Internet someplace, or they're in some the latest book on prophecy about the end times and all the things that's going on, and that's all they ever do. They never learn their Bible. They never get anything out of the Word of God. They're always going for that sensational stuff. And I'm telling you, you know, I mean, I get it all the time. I, and I enjoy it. I mean, I'm not complaining about it. <clears throat> I get a 500 emails probably a month. And they're from everybody. People think I just want to know this. And I want to be honest, I enjoy the emails. It keeps me up on things, but, but I, I realize, I got uh, way back when, you know, four or five, eight or nine years ago, they come up with the idea, you know, that the ashes of a red heifer. Somebody read back in the Old Testament that if you want to trigger the rapture of the church and you want to bring all this stuff and make it all happen, you got to get a red heifer as laid out in the Old Testament, and you got to burn it in a sacrifice, and then you take those ashes, and it would, and the, and the nation of Israel would, would, would do that. It would trigger all the events that would bring Christ back. And you actually had guys down in Texas that were breeding, according to the Old Testament, the exact specifications of the red heifer. I got emails that secretly in Israel, they're, 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 they're breeding cattle because the Jews know they got to have the red heifer. The Jews don't know squat about anything. They don't care about Christ's return. And you could breed 10,000 red heifers. And it wouldn't do you a bit of good because that sacrifice has to be offered by the priesthood. And as we stand here today and look at the nation of Israel, you don't even know where the 12 tribes are, let alone who the priestly tribe is anymore. The people get caught up in those things. The blood moon. Last week, one day this week, was the most spectacular 
lunar eclipse that you probably would ever see for a long time. Now, I'm obviously into astronomy. Lunar, i got to be honest, lunar eclipses never did much for me. I mean, you've seen one, you've seen them all. You want a really a great time, you get a solar eclipse, a totality solar eclipse. And you watch that sun get blocked out and watch when that thing gets down right when it covers us up. You actually see the fire shooting out off the sides. And then as it moves off just the edge, you'll see this big, bright, sparkling thing. It's called the, it's called the diamond formation. It looks like a diamond ring. A black circle with just this bright, brilliant diamond. Now, that's something. That's something. And hey, guys, you know, these stupid people that get in there and saying, well, they're the blood moon, you know, it looks like blood. No, to me, it looked like dirt. <laughs> they all get caught up about the fact that there's so many, uh, all the blood moons. They, it's nothing more than a lunar eclipse. There's no blood to it. They take it out of Joel chapter 2 and make it a blood moon. The moon in Joel chapter 2 is in the tribulation period, not in the church age. You don't even know your Bible. I've probably got 37 emails, and I like them. If you're sending them to me, keep sending them. I enjoy them. 27 things that's going to happen. And was it September or October? I can't even remember. 27 great things. Ooh, like, wow, we've got something here. Well, I can tell you last month, 30 things that happened. I ate breakfast every morning. How's that? Study that out. They'll spend all their time talking about that stuff and never learn the Bible. But I like that. I got to honest. I like that kind of mind. I have that kind of mind. I have an investigative mind. I see something. <clears throat> I've been at Bible study or you've had a conversation with you and you've said something that tricked my trigger about something and I may have never even told you. I'll go home and I won't go to bed till I solve that thing. That's, that's, I like that kind of mind. But that kind of mind has to be under a discipline. I, I used to be that way. I, I mean, I still am to a certain degree. But years ago... I mean, I spend all my time on that stuff. I, uh, and, I, and I realized at one point that I was never going to learn my Bible. I was spending 80% of my time following that and 20% of the time on my Bible. And now in my life, I've turned the thing around. I'll spend 90% of the time on my Bible and 10% of that stuff. And I want to tell you something. Learning the Bible is a good thing, but you, a lot of people out there learn the Bible, but they never learn the author of the Bible. You go to seed on that stuff. You wind up with every kind of issue in your life, and you, you wonder to yourself, why did all this happen to me when I've been doing studying all this stuff about God in the Bible? Because all the stuff you're studying about God in the Bible is not the Bible. Got to get in the book. In Acts chapter 17, verse 20, you have the Athenians. Remember them? In Acts chapter 17, verse 20, Paul says, For thou bring a certain strange thing, or they say to Paul, For thou bring a certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers that were spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. That's what we've got today. Last week I got, talked about the fundamentals. 
how important the fundamentals are. But I'll be also tell you the fundamentals, they're not as exciting as the blood moon. They're not as exciting as finding the red heifer down in Texas. You'd have to know the bar she goes to on Saturday night. You know, it's, it, it's, it's not as exciting as all the things that are out there. But those fundamentals are the bedrock of what you believe. And what's going to get you through tomorrow, next week, your marriage when it goes through problems or the struggles you go with is not going to be who scatter in the ashes of a red heifer where. But it'll be the fundamental principles that saves you, that keeps you, and gets you through. Now around here, I understand that. So I try to, I try to keep a balance. Sunday morning, I, I focus on the, the practical things. And a little sprinkle of doctrine every once in a while. I'll, 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 I'll drop something many times. I'll say something. But I do it on purpose just to see if Thursday night somebody picked up on it. Sometimes they do. Most of the time they don't. My goal on Sunday morning is to build you up, to lift you up, to challenge you, to admonish you, sometimes to rebuke you, and, and obviously to convict when conviction needs to be there. So Sunday morning to me is, is a time where, you know, where I want to I give the body of Christ what they need. Now Thursday night, steak night. Prime rib, all-you-can-eat buffet. Porterhouse, half-inch thick. Done just the way you like it. But again, you never lose the opportunity to bring it back to a practical way. We did it Thursday night. But you still always want to be aware of your crowd. Most churches, if you study churches, and I think studying churches is one of the greatest studies that you'll ever take. It takes a long time to do it, but it pays off. Most Baptist churches come to the place where they have Sunday morning, they have Sunday night, and they have Wednesday night church service. It used to be years ago that you had Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and you came back on Thursday night and went out on visitation. Visitation was when you got all the prospects of people that, that visited your church or all the people that haven't visited your church. And you'd go out there, and you'd get a little group, and you'd get in your car, you'd get your little cards, and you'd go out there and you'd knock on doors and say, we haven't seen you for a while, we'd like to have you come back. I've been in places like that where they wouldn't even turn the television down and talk to you. I've been in places like that where they slammed the door in your face. I've been in places like that where they said, oh yeah, we're coming back this week. Haven't been back in 12 years since that time. And it all fell apart. Nobody does visitation anymore. Hey, you go in somebody's house at 9 o'clock at night and knock on the door, you're liable to get shot. <laughs> and churches today on Sunday morning, maybe the, I know my own home church back in Canton, Ohio, Canton Baptist Temple, Sunday morning they'll run 1,200 people. Huge auditorium. You can, it used to hold six to 7,000 people. Now it's down to around 1,200, 1,400 people on a good day. They have Sunday night service. 200 come back. They don't even meet because they're so embarrassed to meet in that huge auditorium. They shift it over to another little chapel that looks like we're really full. You're really full? Bring them over to the big auditorium and see how full you are. Wednesday night, half of that. Pastors have never gotten the idea 
that if people don't come back on Sunday night and they don't come back on Wednesday night, wouldn't you think you'd get it after a while? Maybe we're not meeting your needs. Maybe I'm not giving you what you need. Maybe just a structured program of Sunday morning, Sunday night, and, and Wednesday night is not really working. But all the answer is, well, we've always done it this way, so we're going to always do it this way, whether it works or not. We have special classes around here, a time that's set aside, a designated time, and we, we look at large portions of the Word of God that are keys in your life. We do it on Thursday nights sometimes. We do it on special nights like maybe church history or manuscript evidence or history of the Bible, things that are absolutely important to you. We have the people ministry here. We fired it back up yesterday after being off for the summer where we simply, my goal was to give you every workable solution to every problem that anybody's going to ever have in their life that's found in the Bible and to teach you how to work with people and help with people. And then you have the one-on-one, my time where you come over and we spend time together. And I have, and I have I, I, you know, I have a little more freedom in a situation like that because it allows me to see what you're really doing one-on-one. In all of it, I'll give you what you need. I'll answer your questions. But even in answering your questions, I may stop short of going to someplace where most of the God's people out there are not ready to go with something. One-on-one's a little different. In that, when you come over on a continual basis, I can find out if it's real to you, the book, or it's just a joke. But in all this, you follow the simple rule that you don't teach all that you know. You just don't. And rule number two in that is don't try to teach something to somebody if you don't thoroughly understand it yourself. People will come to Thursday night Bible study and they'll we'll lay out something that's fairly deep and something that's got some real impact to it, you know. And uh, first thing they'll do, take it home or take it to work the next day and try to explain it to somebody like you're going to impress them with what you learned last night. And you look like an idiot because you don't even understand it yourself. That's, that's exactly what happens so many times. You have to understand what's going on. You have to be able to take the Word of God and completely for the most part, understand it before you can explain it to somebody else. I'm not saying you don't say, hey, you got to come and hear this, or you got to come and see this. But just taking it because you want to give it out and impress somebody doesn't work that way. Well, look at verse 24. The hand of the diligent man shall bear rule, but the slothful shall be under tribute. Now, this is a great practical verse, and it's so true in life. The hand of the diligent shall bear rule. Now that simply says a child of God that is in the Bible, dialed into the Word of God, will submit himself to those that have a spiritual rule over him. That's what it's saying. Bear rule. Bear means to go with something. It means to uh, embrace it, to go with it, to lean on it. And you're going to find that, uh, in, you know, there's rules all the way through the Bible. And I know we don't like rules. I don't even like the word, word rules. But there's rules in the Bible. You can call them principles. You can call them whatever you want. At the end of the day, there's rules. When God gave the Ten Commandments, they weren't the Ten Suggestions. They were rules. You know, if you want to find a spouse, you have to follow Genesis chapter 24. There's a 18 or 20 rules in there that if you follow them, you'll do good. 
If you want to, if you want to learn the Bible, I wrote a book back there on how to study the Bible. I think I gave you probably twenty or some rules that you follow if you really want to learn the Bible. In First and Second Timothy, there's rules in building a church. He lays them out. In Second Corinthians, there's rules that you have to have to form up and build a ministry. He lays them out every chapter. In Romans chapter 14 and 15, there's rules on how you deal with people in life that you have to deal with and you meet and you have to uh, go through relationships with. In the people ministry, when we taught you how to deal with people, one of the first things I gave you was a set of rules you need to follow. Follow these rules because this is how you do it when you deal with people. In understanding marriage, divorce, remarriage, Many people have gotten, and I never fault anybody from getting a, uh, having a bad marriage. It happens all over the place. People get divorced. It's part of life today. I wish it wasn't that way, but it is. But if you want to find out why you messed up and why you don't want to mess up again, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You know what you got? You got the rules on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. It's all through the Bible. In the, in the church, 1 Timothy 5.17, the Bible says the elders that rule well be counted to double honor. They rule. They don't rule as kings or lords or they're not supposed to, but they, they carry out the rules. When you went to school, you had to follow rules. When you go to work, you have rules. Every place you go in life or whatever you do, there's rules involved. Why you would think that being a Christian and getting into the Bible would be any different? In civil government and civil life, in Romans chapter 13, we find that God made civil government because civil government is the rules of society that keep society from going into anarchy. becoming. And he tells you in verse 3, rulers are not a terror to this world because God uses those rulers. He uses nations to accomplish his plan. Hebrews chapter 13, 7 says, Remember them that have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, who... Faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Simply what he's saying in Proverbs, that a diligent man or woman knows that accountability and responsibility are a key to the Christian life. And God has put a structure for us as Christians, the New Testament local church. And it has the rules that we follow to stay between the white lines of life. At a Christian life, they'll, they'll, be, uh, they'll, be, uh, they'll be in these areas. God gave us the government to keep us safe, to give us some kind of order in society. God gave us the Bible to form a structure in your life of God, what he wants you to do. And then God gave you the New Testament church as a structure and a guide to help you get to where God wants you to go. And I'm telling you, the local church is absolutely vital in your life. Now look at the last part of verse 24. But the slothful shall be under tribute. Now, under tribute here simply means under bondage. Oh, a heavy debt, paying tribute. In life, people who will not bear rule will put themselves in a bad situation in many cases that winds up with them being in tribute, paying for something that they did. The greatest example I can think of is the IRS. The IRS has one simple rule. You pay your taxes. Every year, and there will be people who will try to beat that system and not pay their taxes. I've known people who get away with it for years, but sooner or later, they'll find you out and they'll get you in time. 
Back in the 90s, there was a pastor who was the pastor of the Indianapolis Baptist Temple. His name was Greg Dixon. And uh, he had got the idea from somebody somewhere, someplace, that it was unconstitutional and unchristian to pay taxes. And so he went around, he made it his deal that he hadn't paid taxes for 20 years. He made it his men thing in life to go to churches, and he quit preaching the gospel, didn't get anybody saved. He went out around telling churches that they shouldn't pay their taxes, and a whole bunch of Christians fell into that and believed that because he said you can beat it in court, and you can, you can do this, and it's unconstitutional, and they cannot force you to pay taxes. Our church is not doing it, and we're not going to do it. And uh, he was running about uh, five or 6,000 in church that Sunday. Every sermon he preached wound up with you shouldn't pay taxes. That's where he went to seed on it. Well, the IRS came down and put a lien on his church and charged him for $6 million in back taxes. And he cried and cried and yelled and yelled and screamed, oh, the deal and this or that and how unfair it was. And the bottom line is, when he finally started his prison ministry, (laughs) he realized that there are rules. When it comes to paying your taxes to the IRS, you may not like it. You may not like them. They may not like you. They may be unfair. The tax laws look like they're a, a, a jumbled mess. Who could figure them out? I hope someday they'll simplify it, but they probably won't. That would be too simple. They won't do it. But the bottom line is, there's a rule that says you've got to pay it. And when you think you can beat the system, you know what you wind up being under? Tribute. Because you have no rule in your life. And you wind up paying tribute. You take a $200,000 tax bill after a 20-year period of time. They add the penalties to it and all the interest to it. Now you're at $900,000, maybe over a million dollars in back taxes. You're looking at that saying, how am I going to get that million dollars to pay those taxes? And every day you're saying that it's going up $1,000 a day in penalties and interest. By the end of the week, you're another $7,000. By the end of the month, you're another $30,000. And you never simply get out of that. You know why? Because you violated the rules, now you're under tribute. You were not diligent in the rules, and now you're under tribute. Now let's put that in a spiritual context. This is the answer why so many of God's people have the issues they have in life. And in most cases, like a couple of weeks ago, they become unteachable. You can't teach them anything. And they won't follow the rules. They think that God called them to minister outside the rules, you see. That's their mindset. They think, well, the rules apply to everybody else, but they don't apply to me. Well, you have to be in the structure of the local church, but me and my ministry, we're going to be outside the local church. And when you get, you, when you get saved, there are some rules that God gave us to follow. As I said, in the Old Testament, they called it the law, the Ten Commandments. When you follow the rules, when you bear with it, you do fine. But when you think you can be a Christian and beat the system like the guy who's an American citizen who thinks he can beat the IRS, you're in trouble. And just like the guy after 20 years with the IRS has all this money he owes, all this tribute, all the all of the uh, compounding interest and the penalties and added to his original debt, Let me tell you something, after 20 years of as a Christian living their life or her life in a lawless fashion, doing your own thing, and after 20 years you look back and you say, how am I ever going to get out of the mess that I am in? 
You probably won't. Because there comes a time that the tribute gets so heavy, it gets so detailed, it gets so absolutely attaches yourself to everything that it's almost impossible to get out of, just like with the IRS. The tribute of sin will just keep adding on your existing problems. You'll get out of fellowship with God. You'll quit coming to church. You'll get an attitude about the preacher or the church or people in it or the Bible. And then what happens is next you start having personal problems. And when you start, add it up. Get a pencil. And then when you have personal problems, it's only a short time you have marital problems if you're married. And it's only a matter of time that you start to have work problems or job-related problems. And you continue to be have an attitude about the church, your attitude about the pastor or God's people. And then you have people problems. And then as your kids get a little older, hit the, hit the high school age, now you got kid problems. And now your marriage is falling apart, and now you got divorce problems. Now you get divorced, you got two kids, they go live with her because you're such a fool and an idiot. And now you got alimony problems. It puts so much stress and anxiety in life, now you got health problems. Then it leads to emotional problems. Then you have stress and anxiety problems. I want to tell you something. The life, the price of a life of living lawlessly and forsaking the rules and the laws of God in your life will put you under tribute. As I said before, there's rules to learn the Bible. There's learn to operate a ministry. There's rules in building a church. There's rules in your everyday Christian life that you have to apply. And when you don't apply them, you'll wind up under tribute. Now look at verse 25. Heaviness in the heart of man maketh it stoop, but a good word maketh it glad. Now this is a great verse. And it's a great verse on the number one issue of God's people today. Depression. I've never seen a time where God's people have never been in such a state of absolute depression about things. The anxiety, it overwhelms them. It leads to, I don't know how many Christians that that go in to see a psychiatrist or a therapist and they simply say, well, you're a manic depression, you're bipolar. You have the highs in the morning and the lows in the afternoon. And we've developed now what we have commonly known as Prozac Christianity. The Bible principles don't work anymore, but the meds do. And the Bible says, The heaviness in the heart of man maketh it stoop. Now, depression will always affect man's heart through his spirit. We've talked about Job chapter 26 a while back, and it talked about whose spirit came from thee. Bible says in Proverbs 17, 22, A merry heart doeth good like a medicine, but a broken spirit drieth the bones. You know what is like a med- spiritually a medicine to you? When you get down in the dumps and you get down and you get all... Bombed up, bummed out, and you're stopping with things and this and that, and you start feeling sorry for yourself, or something didn't go the way you want it to go. So you start feeling that, and you start getting depressed. You know what is a great medicine for you? I'll tell you what it is the joy, 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 joy down in your heart of that book. That good word is the Bible. It's like a medicine. 
And Proverbs 25, 28 says, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. And in your Bible, the definitive chapter on depression and dealing with it is found in 1 Kings chapter 18. It's an incredible story. We came through it in people ministry last year. It's built around man of God, Elisha, who's up against two of the most wicked people the world has ever seen, Ahab and Jezebel. And he's God's man. He's got the power of God. Why? He just brought down fire from heaven and and burned up the sacrifice, killed the 400 prophets of Baal. He just had a great spiritual experience. And then he hears over the internet, somebody sends him a text, Jezebel's really ticked off at you, and she's vowed to kill you. And the man of God who just had the greatest event spiritually in his life falls apart and goes into depression. You know why? You can't rely on spiritual events for your spiritual maturity. Because they will come and go. And wherever there's a mountain top of your Christian experience, there'll be a valley to get to the next mountain. Old Mel used to say, you don't go from Christian experience to Christian experience. He says, you don't have a great experience and say, wow, look at this, and then you have a bad experience. He says, in the Christian life, you just always walk even. You always walk even. Because I'm telling you, your success and your your victory in Christ is not going to be built on the great victories that you have. It'll be the principles that will get you through the good times and the bad times. When you just focus on the good times, like Elisha did, the valleys are coming. They'll always, I don't care how great the spiritual victory you just had is, there will always be a Jezebel who will bring you down. And Elijah, instead of responding to all he knew, he reacts to what he hears. Ahab and Jezebel are coming after me. He loses his perspective because he lost his principle. And this, guess what happens then? The great man of God, the man who just killed the 400 prophets of Baal and stuck it to Jezebel and Ahab and just did everything for God now, he runs into the wilderness. And all of that beginning of running for the wilderness now begins the other issues. Now he wants to be alone. Don't want to be around people anymore. Now he stops eating. All he wants to do is stay in bed and sleep all the time. He starts feeling sorry for himself, like I'm the only one that's going through this. He loses all his perspective. Of what God was doing in his life. And he enters in and spirals down into that state of depression. And now he gets to where they ultimately all get. He wants to commit suicide. Oh God, take my life. 
Now, I want to say something to you. That Bible says, heaviness in the heart of man maketh a stoop, but a good word, a good word, the good word of God maketh it glad. Now, I've been in this business for a while. And in 40 years of ministry, I've never met a bipolar, depressed person, saved person, that ever had those issues of depression, that ever had three things in their life. Never. I've never met a person that struggled with depression and has all of those emotional issues who ever really knew his Bible. He has never invested his life in the Bible. I don't know what he invested it in, but it was never the Word of God. He never got into the good Word. He never fed his spirit with something that stabilized him that when the tough times come, and they will come, there has to be something that will carry you through. I never met one who knew his Bible. I never met one who was ever actively involved in ministry. They're always too tired, too depressed. Well, I'm just too emotionally upset to focus on any of that stuff. Well, of course you are. I talked to a lady one time and she says, I'm having a problem with depression. For the next 40 minutes, she laid out at least 120 things that she was dealing with. When she was done, she says, ma'am, I said, ma'am, I totally get it why you're depressed. Who wouldn't be? With what you've got in your life. Now let's go back and figure out how it got there. And how you're going to get out of it. And the third thing, I never met one who was actually ever a soul winner. Working with people. Now this is an unfair question to some of you. I understand that. So just take it for what I'm saying here. I don't mean this as a criticism in any way, shape, or form. Have you ever won anybody to Christ? I'm not looking for an answer. Have you ever won somebody to Christ? Have you ever sat down with somebody and opened up the Bible and realized that God of the universe has just choreographed all the angels in heaven on one little spot that you're sitting in with a chair, opening up that book and showing somebody how to get into the kingdom of God? And you, you, you walk them through. You show them. You see their response. You see their eyes well up with tears. You see them actually trust the Lord Jesus Christ as their own personal Savior. I say all that to say this. Listen to me. There is no greater fulfilling feeling in all the world than that. Amen. No, I won $60 million in the lottery. Can't compare. With you sitting down and giving life to someone who 30 seconds before that was on their way to hell. I don't know of anything greater than that. I do not know in 40 years of ministry and 65 years of living on this planet. And I've experienced it all, seen it all, done most of it, and bought the t-shirt in most places where I were. But I'm telling you right now, I do not know of anything that will keep you from ever going down the tubes of feeling sorry for yourself when God is continually using you to change the lives of people. We get that way because we're stagnant. We get that way because we're not following the rules. We get that way because God is not using us.
get down. Everybody gets down. I'll get discouraged. Everybody gets discouraged. But depression, are you kidding me? How do you get depressed when every time you open that Bible, it just falls all over the place? How do you get depressed when you look back on your life and you see what God has given you and everything that you've done and your family and in your church and in the people and you look around? But you know what? you got to get your eyes off yourself and start seeing what God done with you. What the problem is, he hasn't done anything with you. If I were you, I'd be depressed too. And I know some of you are young Christians, I, I, and I'm careful how I say what I'm saying. I know some of you are young Christians, and I know that you, you'll win somebody in time to Christ. I know you will. I've had you sit in my office and, and say, Bob, I just, you know, I've been saved for two or three years now, and I just, I just, I just really want to win somebody to Christ. That's what I'm talking about. You'll win somebody in time. You just got to get to that point in your life. It's the ones who never care. It's the ones who've been saved 10, 15, 20 years. Not only have you not won somebody to Christ, you don't care about winning anybody to Christ. Now, in our context here, chapter 12, verse 25, the heavy heart, the depression that makes a man stoop, or a heavy burden, or a heavy yoke, as the Bible calls it, that puts him in a state of depression. In our context here, we'll be in direct connection to verse 24. The depression will come into our lives when we are under the tribute of not following God's rules. A man forsakes the word of God, the accountability, the responsibility that God saved him for and lives a lawless lifestyle as a Christian. And now he's going through all the issues that have settled in his life and overwhelmed him or her, and now they slide into a state of depression. Welcome to the 21st century Christianity. You know, I've often wondered how the Apostle Paul ever got through all that he did without his meds. I mean, if you go to Book of Romans over there, I mean, I told you last week, do you see the stuff that he went through? Do you see the reject? We think the Apostle Paul, the greatest Christian ever lived. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. You ought to see what he went through to get to that point in his life to do what God called him to do. And not one time. You find burden. You find a place where he's willing to die and go to hell for his own countrymen to go to go to to go to heaven, but never depression. You know why? He knew who he was in Christ. He knew what Christ had him to do, and he was focused on doing it. And when you lose your focus, you lose your perspective. You lose the principles. You go under tribute. As I said earlier, where the Bible won't fix your problems anymore, the Prozac will. Now, here's the key. But a good word, that's the Bible, maketh it glad. Get back to the structure that God has for you, a New Testament Bible-believing local church, and submit yourself to the Word of God through it. Start playing by the rules. 
Listen, it's absolutely impossible to get into a state of depression with the hand of God on your life and the power of God in your world. Impossible. Impossible. You cannot fall into a state of depression when God's hand is on your life and the power of God is working through your life. Impossible. Because all around you, you see and you focus on what God is doing. And when you don't have that to focus on, you have to focus on what you're doing. You have to focus on your circumstances around you that you're in control of. That would make you depressed on its own. You need to look around and see what God's in charge of, what God is doing in your life, how he's changing the events. Look at verse 26. The righteous is more excellent than his neighbor, but the way of the wicked seduces them. Now that's a great verse. The word neighbor is not used in the Bible the way we use it today. You think of the word neighbor, you think of the person next door to you where you live or across the street or down the street. But that's not how the Bible uses the word. In the olden days when the king's English was still pertinent, it was a thing where they would call everybody neighbor. And it didn't mean that you lived next to them. It mean that you were going to be a friend of them like if they did live next to you. That's how it was used. And the verse simply says that you may start out in excellent fashion with God. But if you hang out with the wrong crowd in time, you'll be just like them. Psalm chapter 1, one of my favorite passages in the Bible says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of godly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. You quit walking with God and you start walking with the, with the ungodly. You're not walking with God anymore. You're walking with the ungodly. And pretty soon the next stand is the fact that you're standing in the way of sinners. You're not just walking with them. Now you're standing with them. Have a conversation. Then he says, sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Now you started out walking with them. Now you're standing with them. Now you're sitting with them. And you're just like them. 2 Timothy 3.13 says, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Remember the seven fundamental warnings in Proverbs I gave you last week? Remember what number seven was? That Proverbs talks about all through there? Be careful who you hang out with. You know, my, my girls, when they were in high school, Kelly, she had the chance to be a cheerleader at school. They went to Raytown South, which was not a very good school to begin with, and uh, I know many of you went there, so you know what I'm talking about. Zach, you went there, didn't you? William, didn't you go there? Because they put bars on the windows right after you guys left. Joe went there. And she came to us, and she, and, and you know how kids can be. I think she was probably 13 or 14, and she, she won, you know, the buzz at school, and she had a chance, and all her friends were going to do that. And uh, it's, it, can be a t- it can be a tough time for parents. I mean, a lot of pressure could put on them. And this is where 
If you haven't paid your dues in building the relationship with your child, right here is where you begin to crack the foundation. Because they get a lot of pressure gets put on to be part of that crowd. You know, it appeals to them. And, of course, we said no. And uh, I sat down with Kelly, and I told her this story. It's one of my illustrative stories that, that I put together in, through their kids' lives. And, you know, I, I told her about the time. I said, honey, I said, let me tell you. Let me tell you about the time that I worked in a flour mill. It was a great job, and I made a lot of money. But I said, the problem with working in the flour mill, <clears throat> that that flour dust was so fine and so minute that it just stuck to everything. I mean, <clears throat> I try as I would to stay clean and keep the flour off me. <clears throat> it just would stick to everything I had, get in my clothes. And every day I tried to come home and, and the flour would just be on me all the time. i look in the mirror and my face would be would be just in my hair, be in my ears, be in my eyes, be up my nose. And, uh, you know, it was a thing where it, uh, it, just, it just got everywhere. And there was nothing that I could do. And I told her, I said, you know, think of flour and that job that I had as the world influences in your life. They're so subtle. And they're so minute. Many times I was going there and I was working in the flour mill, I never even knew the flour was sticking on me. It wasn't until I got home and I looked in the mirror and I saw Casper the Friendly Ghost. <laughs> and I said, you know, in anything in life, but what you want to do here, you may have the best intentions to stay pure before God. But sin is like that flower. While you're doing with the best intentions what you want to do, that sin of being associated gets in your everything you do. It'll get in your ears, and it'll affect what you hear. It'll get in your eyes, and it'll affect what you see. And it'll get in your nose, and you'll take it inside you, and it'll affect who you are. And I said, you know what? There will be enough bad issues in life that you have to deal with that you don't have a choice in than making a choice to put yourself in a bad situation that's going to cause you some problems. It's just that simple. And I said, my goal, my word to you, my word to every one of my kids, stay out of the flour mill. It's impossible to stay clean when you're working a flour mill. And you know what? You can have the best intentions, but when you fellowship with the world, you're going to get dirty. You know, I, parents today, I, 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 a lot of times I don't get them. I don't understand it. I've watched them, and I know it's none of my business, and I never stick my nose in. I just, I don't. I just go on with what I got to do. If somebody asks me, I'll tell you. If somebody doesn't ask me, I just move on with life. I got enough things to deal with. But I, sometimes I wonder. I look, and I know it's the part of the time that we live in, but sometimes I wonder, and I think to myself, parents today think the devil died. They really do. You think that he died someplace 30, 40 years ago. 
I've seen parents put their kids in a situation and the parents just never stop and think, that you think, that you think the devil will miss that trick that you just did? You think the devil will miss that opportunity you just gave him? And parents today, they, 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 they deal with their kids and their children and they actually come to the point where they, I think they believe that the devil doesn't exist anymore. Or maybe their family or their child is exempt to it. That's exactly what the devil wants you to think. And it will only get worse. And you who think that you are exceptions to the rules will get deceived. I've seen it with young gals who marry a, an unsaved man or a man who marry an unsaved woman. It looks so good. It looks like it's going to work out. They'll tell you whatever you want to hear. And then once the marriage has taken place, they'll do whatever they want to do. That Bible says, your adversary, the devil, goeth about seeking who he may devour. He's out hunting and he's hungry. And he will devour everything that he can. Now, verse 27 says, The slothful man roasteth not that which he took in hunting, but the substance of a diligent man is precious. Now, this verse illustrates the man that's all through this chapter. Verse 2, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, all the way down through, all the way up to verse 24. He's slothful. The verse here says that he kills animals out of no regard for anything. There no, are no damage to his property. They're not destroying his crops. They're not digging holes in his backyard. They're not coming in and, and doing some disruptive thing. He, he just likes to kill for the sake of going out and killing something. And he spiritually kills other Christians with what comes out of his mouth, that sword that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And he's just wicked, worthless, and he's slothful. His substance, last week, in verse 21, is filled with mischief. We saw it last week. Now look at the last part of verse 27. But the substance of the diligent man is precious. Now, a diligent man with substance is precious because he's so hard to find. <laughs> Proverbs 31.10 says, Who can find a virtuous woman for her price is far above rubies? The precious substance of Christ reigning in us to do his work. And I want to say, I think the number one missing ingredient in God's people today, if somebody just had to boil it down to one thing, it's that one word right there, substance. There's no substance to them. No substance to them at all. You know, all my life, I've been a collector of something. I grew up in the, I was a war baby, grew up in the 50s when World War II was still fresh and on TV you had combat, violent men. The war was still fresh in everybody's mind. And of course, it, it, it formed a lot of guys my age. And, and you know, I, I got interested in the military, got interested in military history, got interested in collecting the artifacts of, of, of wars and all that stuff. And, and there isn't a time in my life that I, that, I, uh, um, that I haven't been intrigued by that, love the research of it, and love the history of it, and just uh, collect all kinds of things like that. And, and people do that. You have some guys that collect guns. Got fabulous gun collections. Some guys collect coins, 
incredible coin collection. Steve Brackeen had a collection of fishing lures. Incredible. Who would care about fishing lures? I mean, it was from all the way back to the early, early turn of the century. Incredible. Gary collects old cars. Got some incredible old cars. Got some incredible hot rods, too. Incredible. My mom used to collect salt and pepper shakers. Wherever we went, she bought a set of salt and pepper shakers. She had 16 cabinets loaded with salt and pepper shakers. I mean, it was incredible. She had them from Washington, went to Washington, D.C., like the White House and the Monument. and She had them from everywhere. Everywhere we'd go, that's all she wanted was salt and pepper shakers. Never used them. We didn't have any salt and pepper in our house, but she had to, if we ever did, she was ready to go, I want to tell you. Some people like collect antiques. Some people like to collect Civil War stuff. Some people like to collect World War I. Some it's like World War II. Everybody's got their deal. And in time, uh, when you collect things, you'll educate yourself about what you collect. I don't care what you collect. Somebody's writing a book on showing you the real thing from the fake. Sometimes the things that you collect are not worth anything. Sometimes you may be common things, but they're in great shape, so you want to have it, put it in your collection. Some things may be hard to find items uh, in any condition. And then every collection, I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's Gary with cars, you guys with guns, fishing lures, or me with World War II stuff. There comes down a time when you find that item is absolutely one of a kind, never be another one, priceless, and it is there. And you're just saying, you know what, man? That is the premier spot in what I collect. And I, and I want to be honest, I, you know, in, in collecting anything, you learn to spot the fakes from the real items. You really do. We're coming up to October 17th um, where they have the veteran salute. And I always do a display up there. Some of you have been up there before. And, you know, this year, uh, Kelly, uh, Kelly and Aaron, Kelly gave me, uh, her mom knew I collected stuff, and her dad was a lieutenant commander in the Navy and, and flew uh, off carriers. And she gave me all of his stuff. And so when people do that, you know, most people just leave it in a basement someplace or a garage someplace, but uh, people give it to me, and I'm doing a display up there for, for her with his picture and all of his stuff, and her mom and her family's coming in to keep their honor alive. I think that's so important. But, you know, uh, I personally think that God gave me that passion to collect. It really helped me in the ministry. Because the greatest collection I have is the people that God has given me. I collect people. And my collection is stunning. I believe every church is a pastor's collection. If you want to know what his church is like, look at his collection. I've known guys that, you know, in collecting, you have different things. Uh, they have what they call a, a, they fake stuff. And so you get a black light. And a black light, you turn it on, turn the lights off, and you shine it on something that's fake, and it glows. And it's a thing, if it's real, it doesn't glow. It's just flat. But if it, boy, you did. And, you know, I've seen collections that were totally fake. I mean, everything in it. I mean, you turn the light off and turn the black light on, and the whole room lights up. And yet there's churches just like that. There's churches like that. I believe every church is a picture of the pastor's collection of people. And you know what? Sometimes it's fake and phony. Sometimes it's a real deal. And you know, and, and, and I got to tell you, God, God has allowed me to unearth 
and find some of the most precious people that you could ever meet in your life. And you know when you collect stuff, you got to go places. I mean, you, you don't find the rare stuff just, you got to go to 63rd Street Flea Market. You got to go down to the bottom someplace. You got to go to garage sales. You got to drive around looking for that special item. They're not always hard to find. They're always not easy to find. But what makes them precious is just two things. The fact that they're diligent about the things of God and the fact that some people just have substance to them. They have a depth to them based on the biblical principles. And I won't tell you, in collecting people, those are two of the rarest qualities that make that person the rarest of the rare. People who know me, they laugh at me because of the fact that they know I never sell anything out of my collection. I've had stuff for 40, 50 years. I've seen guys who buy it this week and they tire of it and sell it next week. And I'm the same way with people that God has given me. People who are diligent, people who have substance. I wouldn't trade them for anything or anybody in the world because you're precious. You have substance. You have diligence. Every Sunday when I walk down them steps and I come up the door and there's a men's prayer group and I come down here and I see women's prayer groups everywhere, all over the place, I say to myself, wow, what a collection. God has unearthed some of the most precious vessels that you ever saw in your life. And I'm telling you, in this lukewarm Laodicean Christianity, you are one of a kind. You're the rarest of the rare. And just like somebody wrote a book that if I'm collecting car parts, this, coins, stamps, guns, whatever, you got a book you can go to and you can find out the value by looking at the picture, by seeing the description, and then getting the price on it. God wrote a book on collecting people. And he lays out the description of what is rare. He lays out the value whose price is far above rubies. He lays out the characteristics that you look for, the model numbers. He lays out every aspect so that if you're paying attention, when you build your collection of people in your church, you build it with the most precious people who have substance, and who are diligent to the things of God. There'll never be another one like you. Lots of fakes and reproductions who they try to get passed off as the real deal, but when you look closely and compare it with the book that the greatest collector of people ever wrote, it shows you the fake stuff from the real stuff. But the substance of a diligent man is precious. And the substance and diligence comes from the rules you follow in life. The rules that God gives us build self-discipline. It builds discernment, discretion. It builds character. It builds responsibility. And it builds in time understanding and wisdom. And it fills us with substance. Yet it makes you the rarest of the rare. Then he closes out with verse 28. And boy, what a great way to close this chapter out. He says, in the way of righteousness is life. And in a pathway, there is no death. Now, what a way to end a chapter of chapter 12. 
we have learned that life is choices. And man has a free will to make those choices. All through Proverbs, we see the two choices with their true consequences. One is a life of, with God and pleasure. The other one is under tribute. A life of fulfilled happiness and joy, filled and satisfied by the Word of God for the work of God. The other is a life of mischief and trouble, heartache, deceit, wickedness, and all the consequences that come with that. One is a path that leads to life with no death. The other one is a life that leads to death with no life. And it's just that simple. Well, we'll hold up there. We'll have a word of prayer and be dismissed in a moment. Don't forget, uh, we'll have the restart meeting in about five minutes. As I look